Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North and welcome to Forum Borealis with a brand new program on our war series. This time we're talking with Carter Heydrich, the outstanding researcher who was the first to prove that Nazi Germany surrendered enriched uranium for the United States Manhattan Project, which helped them complete the first A-bomb in modern history. Why? Would Germany give this to their enemy? How could they give this when, according to mainstream history, they were far behind in nuclear research? And how is all this related to the deputy Führer Martin Bormann and a growing amount of evidence for his covert escape? Heydrich spent over ten years of his life buried in the obscurest archives, libraries and databases researching and retrieving rare, lost and hidden documentation, gradually uncovering a huge scandal of history that hitherto has only been known by a select few in the high echelons of the intelligence community and that is now becoming known to the general public and so will force an eventual rewriting of mainstream history. Although Mr. Heydrich is not a professional historian, but rather had a career as director for a couple of Fortune 500 companies in the field of uh, electronics and computers, his research is of top-notch academic standard, with scholarly and sober details, references and primary sources, as laid out in his monumental book Critical Mass, that has already become a classic and for many years was expensive, if not impossible, to attain. Now that a new edition is out, we've invited him on to dig deep into the details of his revelations as the breathtaking story of how the Third Reich almost won the nuclear race, as well as the origins to the spider, the post-war Nazi network of Bormann that transformed into a conglomerate of multinational cartels and one of the biggest power players in our world. Unfortunately, he has paid a high price for getting this info out to the public, but truth is worth personal sacrifices to those who want to know. Fortunately, he has received many acclamations and recognitions from a whole host of experts, journalists and scholars, including our regular guest at this topic, Dr. Joseph Farrell, and Carter has even been invited to speak about his discoveries several times for scientists and technicians at Oak Ridge National Laboratory and Los Alamos National Laboratory. When faced with his hard facts, a new and disturbing story emerges that we are now going to explore, as it fits like a hand-in-glove with the narrative we've already begun outlining in this hour series. In part one, we begin by accounting for the wartime nuclear race, with a key element that is the journey of the submarine U-234 from Norway to America with its exotic cargo, as well as looking into Bormann's rise to power. 
In part two, we get down to the central core of this story, learning how Bormann arranged his escape, the nature of its price, and what it all led to, both in terms of what we know, as well as what we are beginning to understand. I cannot underestimate the importance of this story, folks, so lean back and join us for this wild ride where truth outplays fiction. Welcome to the forum, Carter. Thank you, Al. It's uh, good to be here. Appreciate you inviting me on. Yeah, and I'm I'm so pleased to have you on because uh, you bring on the table, I- I'd say, one of the most important fate-deciding elements in our modern history, yet so overlooked and unknown until now. Yeah. And uh, uh, people who listen, you, you'll understand what I'm referring to as this show unfolds. And a little clue for you is a certain U-boat called U-234. And uh, history buffs among you will immediately know what we're referring to. So today, Carter, um, your groundbreaking book called Critical Mass. Uh, when, when did it come out, by the way? First edition. Uh-huh. The first edition, I think, came out in 2001, I think. The second edition in 2003. Right. So so it's already somewhat old and, and a classic. And uh, we've touched some of the stuff in this book already, but now we have it straight from the horse's mouth. I heard about you, actually, first time I heard about you was via Dr. Farrell. Yeah, I, I, he quotes you heavily. First time I heard about you was through Dr. Farrell, too. He... Uh, he <laughs> He suggested that uh, you would be one of the one of the good people to try and get on your program, and so I was excited when he invited me on. I was like, "Oh wow, things couldn't get any better than this." No, you're you're the perfect guest, so he's very right there. Oh, thank you. And I see your book has a million endorsements from scholars, scientists, media people, etc. And I'm guessing it's because you really impressed me too. It's because you're such a primary uh, researcher. You really have primary sources. That uh, I figured everybody who written about this in the past had used anecdotal stuff and other people's work, but just by virtue of what I thought I understood, I I knew it wasn't going to fly if I didn't get actual seminal documentation to prove it and you're right probably 85 percent of the book is the actual documentation in either primarily in the united states national archives but uh, some of the Bundes archives as well yeah yeah no i'll, I'll say you're like a modern day manning or farago oh, thank you <laughs> and, pardon i say that's good company to be in thank you yeah exactly and no, but it's groundbreaking. Like the, their stuff was groundbreaking back in the day, and uh, your stuff is too. And uh, although this uh, program today is not going to be about Hitler, I do say that it's too bad that the facts about Hitler's possible escape uh, and you know the debunking of the traditional stuff around his and uh, the potentiality of this Die Glocke Nazi bell was unknown to you when you wrote that book. It was uh, virtually unknown to me, yes. <laughs> and everybody else, of course, because these things weren't out then. Right. So I think actually some open questions in your book can be answered by more recent revelation, but maybe we'll get back to that as uh, as this program unfolds. Now, people, uh, today what we're going to do is that we're going to begin now 
to talk about the Nazi atomic bomb. And uh, the uh, we've got to mention the uh, anniversary thing about... Um, oh, yeah. Sorry, yeah, that was Hiroshima? Uh, Hiroshima, yeah, on uh, August 6th. How long ago? August 6th. Yeah, but how long ago? How many years? Oh, uh, 76 years ago. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And later, we're going to focus more on Martin Bowman, because as you know, uh, dear folks, uh, one of our agendas here is to hunt down the brown eminence, the Schwein Bowman. So, uh, and I think exactly. Carter's book here is a very monumental part of that story. So, let's begin then with the so-called Nazi atomic bomb. Now, we do know that everybody and his mother were researching nuclear bombs back then uh, during the war. Uh, it was this desperate race. But yeah. what does the... Well, let's start with the mainstream version. What does mainstream history say about this? I'm glad you asked, because that's always the best place to start, and some interviewers don't do that. But, uh, you know, the traditional history is fundamentally that the uh, United States uh, created the atomic bombs, mostly by itself. It kind of merged early on with the British program, which wasn't very far, but they provided some some uh, expertise, not much and materials, but some expertise primarily. And then there were some uh, European immigrants, Fermi and Sillard and uh, Teller and others, who came over and joined the Manhattan Project. But fundamentally, the base story is the uh, United States created the first atomic bombs and used them by itself without any other help other than what I just outlined. Mm. And um, the official story also say that Russia and Germany were simply, you know, far behind America, that they weren't competent enough to, to get this in time. They do. Yeah, they do. And from my studies, and I haven't studied Russia probably as much as I, I could have, but I don't think Russia was in a position, was really doing much very successfully. Uh, the reason they got their atomic bomb as quickly as they did after the war is because they captured the guy who built the main ingredients for it during the war for Nazi Germany, and that was the uh, uh, Baron Manfred von Ardenna. Uh, sorry, what was the name? Manfred von Ardenna. Mm. He was a baron, and uh, he he was actually very young, but he he inherited it at the age of twenty one or twenty three. His parents' vast estate, and then he was also funded by the uh, postal ministry, and he originally. He had done a lot of things. The thing probably he's most famous for prior to his work with atomic uh, energy for the Nazis was uh, he developed a form of television that was actually the television that was used to uh, record and broadcast the first Olympic Games. It was the first television broadcast, you know, in in history. Hmm. Ardenna was responsible for that. So he was a genius in his own right and had lots of money and was funded with a lot more. So. Was he tied up with the Heisenberg crowd? He was not, and that's part of the uh, uh, the, the deal. Um, the Germans separated their efforts. Heisenberg worked under the exegesis of the main German government. I'll call it the German government as opposed to the Nazi government, although the Nazis was running it. But mm. he worked for them and under a military chain of command. And, you know, the the whole German atomic bomb, the success of the German atomic bomb was hidden behind Heisenberg's failure. And if I can take a moment to explain that. Of course. Um, yeah. 
There are as few, and probably most of your audience knows, there's two ways to, to create an atomic bomb. One's with through enriched uranium, which was the kind that we used to drop on Hiroshima. The other kind is with plutonium, which is the kind that we dropped on Nagasaki. Mm. Now, the Germans knew that they could do enriched uranium and plutonium bombs as well. They were actually ahead of us. They were smarter than us, frankly, in, mm-hmm. in much of their technology. Mm. Um by us, I'm in the United States. It's not obvious. I know you're in you're in Europe, and your listeners are in Europe. So I'm talking. To- Actually, we we've been so popular in America now that half our audience is American. Great, you're fully inter- fully international. Yeah. Anyway, so if if I talk in my own vernacular, it's just because I'm how I'm used to talking. But I say yeah. Plus, plus we in this context, we are the same. We are the West. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right? Absolutely. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Heisenberg, the, the German effort to enrich uranium, initially under the um, the normal German program, uh, they made a miscalculation in the moderating capacity of graphite, which is what we use to moderate our enriched uranium. Mm. I'm sorry. It's, it's what we use to moderate our breeder reactors. And having failed that they tried to use heavy water heavy water they were close to having some success with but the end of the war came before they did now i tell you sorry for interjecting here but our you know it's a part of our official story in norway that we sabotaged absolutely yeah the people plant yes absolutely you know about that and i yeah i cover it in a little bit in the book um anyway so the challenge of using heavy water pretty much stopped the plutonium bomb from making any serious success progress during the war. And so General Gross was the military head of the Manhattan Project, actually the overall head of the Manhattan Project, and he used that as a story to say the Germans failed because they couldn't get heavy water to work and they couldn't make plutonium, therefore they couldn't make a bomb. Totally, totally, totally ignoring the fact that enriched uranium was a possibility, okay? Mm. And it was not the easier possibility, but it was the easier one to to, uh, trigger, which we'll get to in a little while. The reason I share that is I I mentioned Baron Manfred von Ardenna. He is the man who, on the German side, supported, funded by the Postal Ministry, he had a laboratory on his own estate. It was underground, concrete underground laboratory that the Postal Ministry built for him. And he, with the help of another guy, really fascinating guy by the name of uh, Dr. Fritz Hottermann, They were the were the first ones and actually the first ones to enrich uranium. He had a uranium enrichment process and equipment that experimental equipment that he designed and built prior to our own calutrons being designed and built, which is uh, what we call our uranium enrichment process equipment. And uh, he was ahead of us. And not only that, but According to David Irving, the, his enrichment process was four times more efficient than the Manhattan Projects ever was. Hmm. And he uh, successfully enriched significant experimental amounts of uranium before we did. And then the story kind of goes dark on him. And even that part, what I've just shared is in the shade. Most people don't really know that that, that happened. But, uh, but he was able to enrich uranium. And the reason we know this, uh, and I cover this in the book, there's three things I mentioned to you while we were chatting before the show that uh, 
I kind of went into, I didn't go into hiding, but I kind of had to set aside the, the book for a while. And, and so I kind of lost track of what was going on, going on with it. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 to get your book, you had to pay like uh, a mortgage on your house. I mean, that was a huge surprise to me. I, I kind of went into the wilderness because I had to focus on my family because I had spent 10, uh, almost 15 years researching, writing, and then marketing the book. And, and it had cost some I'm, I'm probably living in, in, in libraries uh, yeah. investigating documents. Huh? So, yeah, I spent 10 years virtually doing that. Three of my family's vacations as well as a lot of my <laughs> time after work. Give my sympathy to your family, okay? <laughs> oh, they, they, they have it. And i got to tell you, I'm very appreciative that they're, that they're supportive of me doing this third yeah. edition yet. Yeah. But the point I was trying to make is I, I, I kind of went into the wilderness, and then six months ago, I was l- looking on the internet. Actually, a friend of mine at work was looking on the internet. I told him about the book, and he was like, man, that book's really expensive. And I'm like, well, it was like 1995 for a paperback and 24.95 for a hardcover. He goes, no, it's selling for 350 to $650 on the internet. <laughs> It had, while I had been hiding my head in the sand, it had virtually become a, a conspiracy theory cult classic. And, and, and still, even with the third edition coming out earlier this month, it still uh, runs in $100 to get a copy of the first or second edition. So Yeah, because it's, it's fresh from the press. It's Trine Day who now publishes that third edition. Right. And I got my copy here, paperback, and and it's uh, it's really recommended reading because – it's uh, you, you manage a very hard feat actually you balance between lots and lots of geeky info to put it like that you know <laughs> technical stuff you know buffs uh, who are into uh, that right. will uh, appreciate that but then you also balance it with a very exciting very thrilling story to read especially one of my favorites is you know the the Bowman part so uh, this is highly recommended both for academics and the layman uh, both will get something out of it. And notwithstanding, of course, that it's groundbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No wonder it was so expensive. Thank you on all counts. I, I have to say that the uh, uh, the readability issue cost me two years because of the, when I first turned it over to readers, it was way too geeky. And they said, this is really horrible. It's boring. And they wouldn't finish reading it. So I had to pull it all back. And, and you know, two years is a long time when you think you've got something done to start over again. So, so it's really your life work uh, in this area. In that area, yeah, mm. I'd have to say it's, uh, you know, outside of my professional career and my family, it's the significant thing that I've done that I hope will be considered a worthwhile contribution at some point. I, I know it is with the, with the, your audience. I'd like to see it become broadly understood as the correct history, which I think it is. Mm. Let me let me go back to the reason I did. So I did the first two editions. I disappeared for for ten years, and then uh, I realized number one that first two editions had caught this groundswell and it was being valued and people understood it so much that they were willing to pay a significant amount of money to have that history in their library. Mm. And I thought that's great. and it it made me start to think about okay should I should I do a third edition. Because there were some other things that had happened, and one of them was again, uh, Doctor Farrell had brought this to my attention, um, and I didn't know him at the at the time, but I I went on, I would go on the internet every six months or so and just kind of put my name in there and see how it was being used for good and ill, and it was being used on both <laughs> sides, which was kind of okay with me because I was just anyway. So and in there, I I found a reference that Doctor Farrell made to an article in the July thirteenth, two thousand eleven edition of the Daily Mail online in which 
126,000 barrels of enriched uranium. Uh, not, not, I'm sorry, not enriched. 126,000 barrels of spent uranium that was documented in the documents for that uranium was documented as being the spent uranium left over from the Nazi atomic bomb project and it pretty much used them. Right, in uh, the concentration camp, right? Uh, right. Yeah. You know, it didn't say where it was from, it, it, where it was produced. It just said, this is... This is material from the German nuclear bomb effort in the last war. Mm. And so we're talking about 126,000 barrels. I did some calculation. I made, a, I made an assumption that 40 gallons a barrel would be a reasonable conservative effort amount for a barrel to contain. And based on that and the weight of uranium, it was 375,000. That's 375,000 barrels of I've got to get my number right. 375,000 tons of spent uranium. Now, that is far, far, far beyond not only experimental quantities, but beyond what the United States used in the Manhattan Project by several orders of magnitude. So, I, and, I, and here's the thing. I, in my first two editions, I had said that store of waste uranium is out there somewhere. Mm. And I didn't know if they'd ever find it. And one of the reasons I kind of went into hiding is because I never did. And I was taking a beating. People would, you know, I'd give my presentation. They'd read the book and they'd go, this is really, really great. But without proof, without any waste uraniums, it can't be true. Mm. Like it's out there somewhere. We just haven't found it. And I had given up that it would be found, but they found it. Hmm. Um, now, the historians are saying, well, I can't be it because we all know that Germans never made enriched uranium. Right. But there's a couple of other serious pieces of evidence smoking gun level evidence that they did in fact do so you probably you read the third edition in which the forward was written by dr delmar bergen right dr bergen is retired now but he was the director of the nuclear weapons program for los alamos national laboratory which is where the uh, the design and experimentation primary design and experimentation were done for the bombs he has gone on record he wrote the forward and in the forward he said that the uranium that was discovered, that was surrendered on uh, U-boat U-234, which you mentioned at the top of the show, that uranium was stowed in such a way, and the handling directions were given in such a way, and it was labeled U-235, that he is positive it is enriched uranium, and that there was enough on the boat to make at least one atomic bomb. So the fact that a world-class physicist would interpret that uranium on U-234 that way is a clear indication that Germany, the Nazis, were successful. When did he do this? Uh, he actually gave me an endorsement on my on my second edition. He endorsed it and said that, but he made it very clear. He, he describes in more detail, made it very clear in the forward in the third edition. So the second edition came out in 2003. Back then, he was saying that I had it right. And that's one of the reasons why I had been predicting, hey, there's spent uranium waste somewhere in Mount quantities and it's it's there we just haven't found it mm. those are the two two of three key pieces proofs that uh, the nazis enriched uranium the third one was this was also in my book and it was also in the first and second editions of my book and that's another reason why i said that uranium is out there mm. the directors of the ig farben company conglomerate during their inter interrogations after the uh, war and in preparation for the Nuremberg trials, they said that there was uh, that the they had built a synthetic rubber plant called Buna at Auschwitz, and it's part of the traditional history, as is the story of U two thirty four and the uranium in there. Part of the traditional history; these are all parts of the traditional history where I've 
break from the traditional histories. And in the case of U-234, I say the uranium was enriched, and, and the rest of the historians and people say it, it wasn't, but it's it's ludicrous now to say it wasn't. Mm. So there was a Buna plant, and where I break from the traditional history is in my interpretation of what that plant actually did, and my interpretation is based on the interrogations from those directors of IG Farben. They said that the the plant was it was in existence for four years. That they spent an amount of money that was actually ten million dollars more than the United States spent on our uranium enrichment process, um, which is a huge amount of money, mm. and and that the, the plant consumed as much energy, as much electricity as the city of Berlin, which was the eighth largest city in the world Jeez. at the time. Yeah. So. Eddie, and you know, I'm still appalled that nobody else picked up on this because it was in the record. And I looked at that, and I'm like, okay, so here's a plant that isn't—it's in existence. It's been in existence for four years. By the way, uh, the German IG Farben developed a a affiliate of IG Farben developed the first Buna back in 1926, and had built four Buna plants, each within under a year since then. And then the Buna plant at Auschwitz was four years, and it never produced any Buna, but it conserved more energy than the eighth largest city in the world. What's wrong with this picture? If it's not producing anything, why is it consuming so much energy? Again, Dr. Bergen in the forward and back in the original editions uh, was supportive in saying that is not a quantity of a consumption you'd expect for synthetic rubber, but it's absolutely (laughs) online with his experience for what what kind of electrical consumption is used to enrich uranium. So you have three very strong legs, proofs that say, hey, the Germans enriched uranium. Anybody who's who's seen the, the evidence, my research, mm. you know, agrees. There's very few people that, that if they know and they're being honest with themselves, will, will counter it. Now, there are some reviews that are critical, but they… they oh, there will always be. And, and there will always be people who fight uh, nail and tooth for the official narrative based upon emotions, not upon science. Right, they have. They so have, you can't mind that. It's very obvious uh, if you read the book and you read their reviews. It's very obvious that they have either not read my book or they are blatantly misrepresenting what I what I've written because of what or they're cherry picking uh, what, what constitutes oh, yeah. the reality. That's just how it is. We can't we can't take heed of that. We have to assume that we're discussing with adults who actually want to know facts, right? Uh, absolutely. Never mind the, the others. I, I don't mind them too much, but I just uh, I made a pretty definitive statement and I realized, well, I better make sure that everybody knows. I, I, I know there are, are critics out there, but here's my view of them. Mm. But for what it's worth, and I think it's worth a lot, I have given my research presentation to Los Alamos and to Oak Ridge, and they both invited me back a second time. Los Alamos was standing room only. Oak Ridge got me special, uh, their historian, the Oak Ridge official historian got me special clearance to go into the classified part of the laboratory, and I presented to their scientists and technicians. So, Yeah, I was going to mention that actually, but we can take it now since it's up. Um, If you people go to our YouTube channel and you check out our liked videos, uh, that's that's not our videos, but the videos we've uh, liked, there is a list there. You'll find very easily, you'll find Carter's uh, presentation at Oak Ridge. Thank you. We managed to track that down, um, Carter. So, so I'm glad you did that. Thank you for linking that. That's helpful. And it's very satisfying for all those people who want, you know, the nitty gritty (laughs) technical detail and stuff like that. Oh, good. I'm glad to help you. Uh 
Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and your book is full of details. We can't cover all the bases when we're making a case for uh, why we think that Germany actually completed their first uh, the, the atomic bomb before us. But I, I want to go back to the fact that uh, it wasn't the usual scientist like you would expect, like Heisenberg and, and that crowd. And I guess one very obvious reason is that this was top secret and it was uh, war decisive in many ways, those who would get it first. And so if Heisenberg and those people weren't clear enough, they weren't Nazi enough, right? They were a part of the formal uh, state structure they needed uh, was it the Kammlerstab who was uh, doing this research or no, who was the people who actually did it it was actually done as, a, as I mentioned earlier it was um, the Americans kept there was a lot of pressure on Americans to put the man, keep the Manhattan Project inside the military. And Groves was, Oppenheimer talked him out of doing that. He, he said, you need to keep it in a civilian sphere because it's more open. Not, not that they couldn't be secret, it couldn't be kept confidential, but the, the exchange of ideas is more functional and more free flowing. And they needed that because at time was of the essence. And if they put it in the military, it would be compartmentalized and they wouldn't be able to do that and convince Groves to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very successful. The Germans kind of did the same thing, not for the same reasons, but they had Baron Manfred von Erdena. His project was funded by the Postal Ministry, as I've already said. The head of the Postal Ministry was a guy by the name of Richard Onishorn, who happened to be a uh, professor of mathematics and physics before he became the Postal Minister. Had a deep interest and ran a research facility under the Postal Ministry's auspices and... uh, he, his boss in turn, up the chain, I don't know how many levels, but Martin Bormann was the head of the Nazi party. He was virtually and literally the second most powerful man in, oh, yeah. in the whole Third Reich because he ran the party and the party ran the government. And uh, he and Hitler were, you know, t- were the two figureheads of that. Bormann was much secretive. And I know you have a lot of interest in Bormann and following him, so I'm not going to try and educate you too much on him. You could probably educate me on him. But he, yeah, we, we're going to go deeply into Bormann uh, okay. in part two today. But complete your thoughts. Yeah, that's good. Um, so Bormann provided the funding to the Postal Ministry for Ardenna to create enriched uranium. And, and that's how they got their enriched uranium that was found in the sub and, and the waste in, uh, in the salt mines outside of Hamburg. Mm. It's very interesting that uh, there was a guy by the name of Henry Pickering. He was also a doctor, a professor. He wrote a book called Hitler's Table Talk. And it was basically an accounting of as much information about Hitler as they could get from his daily life and details. In his book, Hitler's Table Talk, he referenced that Hitler on multiple occasions, not just once, but on multiple occasions, sounded like quite often whenever he was in Berlin, he would go by Ardennes Laboratory and see how it was doing. Now, he never went to Heisenberg's or von Weizsäcker's or or you know, any of the other famous German physicists who were supposedly the leaders in, in the nuclear weapon for Germany. Mm. He never visited any of them, and they never had any real success. But he visited Ardenna multiple times. And the fact that he went, he kept going back, tells me that things were progressing well. Otherwise, he wouldn't keep going back just for nothing, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's another evidence that that Ardenna was successful in enriching uranium and that it was supported by Hitler and by extension by Bormann down through the postal ministry. So if Bormann was the guy who was financing this, uh, in, in a way, he was, the, he was the guy who was giving this task 
uh, if he was involved, I can see that venture succeed because uh, from all I, I've seen, most of his schemes were succeeding. They were. <laughs> including including the post-war stuff. He was a very effective administrator, and, and you're right, including the post-war stuff. Uh, Jochen von Lang and many others, part of the traditional history that at the end of the war, when we put, people were talking about the miracle weapon coming out, it was almost always tied to Borman. The people were saying, yeah, Borman's got it coming out. Borman's, you know, knows what's happening. Borman's, it, it's just telling that that uh, that he he was the civilian side through the Nazi party that uh, that was responsible for bringing the nuclear weapon capability to the Nazis. That, that's a shilling tort, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Borman plus nuclear weapons. Oh my God. Yeah. But uh, let's let's now debunk the usual arguments against that the Germans got it first. Like, uh, yeah, they usually, and, and you raised some of them here you, in your book. You said, like, uh, one very common uh, objection is that, oh, well, if they got it, why didn't they use it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what do you say? And that's a, there are really two questions that I got that people thought, you know, were going to shut me down. And the, the, the one I already covered, and that was there was no uranium waste. Well, it's been found. The first one was always what you just said. If the Germans had a nuclear weapon, they would have used it. And I would say, yeah, if they had it in time, they would have used it. And they said, well, they were still in the war at the end of the war. That's true, but they had lost superiority of the skies. The Luftwaffe could not send a weapon, a nuclear weapon, to any strategic target that was of high enough value to equal the investment they had made in their in their nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, they had, you know, to put it in a lumbering bomber, it would have gotten shot out down from the sky. It wouldn't have fit in a V-1. It would have fit. They could have put it on a V-2. The problem was the V-2 had no guidance system that would get it anywhere close to a target with any accuracy they were they were known to be consistently 12 to 14 miles off so if you're trying to hit the center of london and you're 14 miles off you're out the countryside right (laughs) Mm. Uh, that's no good so no because these first bumps they didn't have a very wide range well the the uh, v2 didn't have a very wide range but on u234 and this is part of the traditional history also on u234 not only had the, the enriched uranium as well as uh, makings for a reactor and all kinds of other stuff, it had the plans and parts for V2 and V4 rockets. And the V4 was the predecessor to the intercontinental ballistic missile. It was the actual model. They didn't reinvent it. They said, here's what the Germans have done. Let's take it next step and make it. And that's what they did. That's when we got the intercontinental ballistic missile. The, but even with that, so they could, that missile could have crossed the Atlantic and hit New York from Germany in 17 minutes, I think it was. The problem was the uh, guidance system wasn't accurate enough. And the further off you are, the the further distance it had to travel, the further off you were going to be on the target. It's interesting that in the interrogations of some of the passengers on on U-234, mainly Kay Nieschling, who was a uh, party judge who was going to Japan to try some Germans over there, Mm -hmm. and General Kessler, Ulrich Kessler, who was going over to be the air attache, they both said that the uh, the V-1 and presumably the V-2 as well had been fitted with a cockpit and could be piloted. And that's how, uh, and they suggested, I think it was Kane, Kane Eastling at least, suggested that the thought was that they would send the rockets over to Japan and kamikazes would pilot the rockets. All of a sudden you have a very, I'll say inexpensive because... If you have a man willing, alive and willing to pilot it, it doesn't cost you any money. It's expensive, obviously, in a human life. Mm. But 
kamikazes were doing that all the time for their glory. It's easy to think that they were – Kane Easting said they were going to send the, the rockets over, put cockpits in, and on U-234, also part of the traditional history was a high-altitude pressurized cockpit. Mm-hmm. Presumably could have gone in the in the rocket, could have gone in. They had a Henschel high-altitude, high what they called a stratosphere plane. Um, they had an ME-262, which was the first jet fighter, originally designed as a bomber, but turned into a fighter, but it could still be retooled as a uh, bomber. So they had several. What about these big, huge Junker planes? The Junker planes, um, again, I think they could have, unless they they were like the Henschel that could get up in the atmosphere, I don't think they could get enough altitude that they could avoid the uh, U.S. and the British Air Force, and they'd get shot down before they got to their target. Is that also the problem with, for instance, using submarines or trains? Yeah, submarines and trains are different. Well, the first thing you need to understand, for the bomb to be efficient, it needed to be designated about 1,500 feet in the air to really get the most efficiency. Mm. So the challenge getting it on a train, if you could get it on a train, but getting it through the, across the border successfully was probably going to be hard to do. There might have been other ways, but you still had to get it high enough in the air that it would be efficient. Same problem with the submarine, only worse, you got it underwater. And and water actually serves as a moderator, absorbs neutrons of the sort. So it would it would actually shut down the chain reaction before it got very far. You might you probably have an explosion, but it wouldn't be near the power they that they knew they needed for the investment they had. So those were kind of invalid delivery platforms as well. Mm. So, so it's uh, inconceivable that uh, there was any practical way to use it at that point, uh, so uh, late in the war. Not without taking significant risk, which they could have done. But I think I think Borman saw that there's a lot invested there, and we're going to yeah. talk about Borman in in a, in a few minutes, and you'll understand when we have that discussion about his motivations, but. Mm-hmm. I think he was highly motivated to use that as a tool for a negotiation that allowed him to carry on after the war and do and do what he did after the war. And without it, it's I doubt whether he'd have successfully uh, escaped. Yeah, I mean it's the family jewels, and um, you know yeah. you're being held hostage, so to speak, and uh, you have to pay your way out. Uh, you right. can't come with glass beads. Right. <laughs> you have to. And the problem, I guess, also is if they try to use it and it doesn't work, then it's in the hands of the enemy and they have no more cards to play. Right. And that's that's part of the problem. If, you know, they could try to deliver it uh, by, a, by a plane, but if the plane gets shot down, the weapon falls into our hands, right? Here we got a home, you know, so we'll do that. Or even worse, it could uh, detonate in their own area. <laughs> That's a possibility too. Yeah, or it could just it could detonate. It could fall in and become a, a what's it called a dirty bomb instead of a quick chain reaction, be a slow chain reaction, mm. which would be wouldn't be helpful for anybody. I don't think no. they didn't want that to happen. They really the bomb they wanted for the explosion, not for the radiation. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure it's not ethical concerns who held them back at this point. Oh uh, no. <laughs> in fact, I want to discuss uh, the scenario with you that you so enticingly lays out at the end of the book. Uh, the atom bomb has a huge focus in the beginning of the book and then in your, I think it's the epilogue. Uh-huh. So let's discuss that scenario since we're discussing the bomb now. What do you think was the ideal scenario here? I mean, 
you do mention that ideal for who <laughs> yeah right well for for the axis because that's the perspective here right okay, um, yeah. i mean you do mention that uh, they wanted to ship it over to japan and you lay out some very interesting hypothesis what if yeah. this happened or that happened i want us to to go into that i think there are several legs of speculation we could follow but i, I there are two that i think are the most probable the one I think is significantly the most probable, and, and I'll kind of follow up with that last. But as you mentioned, the material, all of this technology, and as part of the traditional history, again, was part of a technology exchange agreed to between Germany and Japan. So it was all going to Japan, mm-hmm. yeah, along with some experts. They had scientists and technicians and, and two Japanese officers on the U-boat. They were all going to Japan as part of making these uh, functional. Mm. And the idea was that they, the timeline I use, it's conceivable, it's hard to know because, again, it's speculation, but it's conceivable that Germany Germany left Norway on, uh, I'm sorry, Germany left Norway. U-234 left Norway on April 16th and was heading, it's, it's plausible if it had just headed out like it was supposed to do, it's easily plausible that it could have made Japan by sometime around the end of August, uh, maybe even earlier. So, and then it's plausible with because they had the scientists and technicians, they had the plants and parts. It's plausible that they could have taken that those uh, delivery platforms, picked one, completed the bomb. They had the they had the inertia uranium. All they needed was the triggering system. And triggering the uh, triggering a uranium bomb is really pretty easy. It just uh, what we did with the with little boy which was the name of the Hiroshima bomb, we took a high-velocity cannon and uh, shot one piece of enriched uranium about the size of a can of soup into another piece of enriched uranium that had a hole in it about the size of a can of soup. They just shot it in there with the cannon, high-velocity cannon, and it was assembled fast enough that it created the explosion. Mm. So from that point of view, Germany was very close to having the bomb, and and I know that there are there are uh, books out about that. A couple of bombs were tested on Rügen and elsewhere, and I don't want to follow other people's research just because we don't have time. I do want to say that I don't think any of us are mutually exclusive of each other. I think each of us help each other to prove the points that that we're making, so it's all good. Sure, sure. So, I, but I'm going to leave that behind for now. The Got where I was going, Al. Sorry. Well, we were going. Uh, we were talking about the scenario of Japan getting the bomb in time. Oh yeah. So 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 Japan had the material, had the plans, had uh, technicians from Germany uh, there, and presumably they could have. By my estimation, it's logical to assume that they could have had a bomb ready, along with a delivery platform, by about the end of November. Mm. Well. In my book, a lot of people think that I totally rewrote the Manhattan Project, that the Manhattan Project wasn't successful in reaching uranium, wasn't successful breeding plutonium, and that's not true. They were successful doing both. The problem was they didn't have enough to do it in time to end the war when they needed to, and I'll explain that in a second as part of the answer. But So, so what's the mainstream estimation of when it would have been ready? Well, the mainstream estimation is what happened, and it's wrong. So you know. Yeah, but okay, but before uh, I read something about because I know that I read that Japan actually tested their uh, bomb one or two weeks before the Americans, so they seem to be ahead. Have you heard about that? I've heard about that. Now I don't know if you talked to a guy by the name of Robert Wilcox. He wrote a book called Japan's Secret War. 
And uh, he talks about Japan's nuclear program, which was called EFCO. And uh, he has a more uh, optimistic view on how successful they were than I do. Mm. Um, He thinks that they actually succeeded. My perspective is that uh, the bombs they tested, they actually tested them in Korea, according to the accounts that I've seen. The bombs they tested were actually preliminary to U-234. There was at least two other U-boats that were scheduled to go to Japan as part of this technology exchange. And it's easy to conceive that they had enriched uranium on them. And I believe that that's what was tested in Japan was German makings, not Japanese. Because you have to understand the Japanese industry at that time, war making industry, they, they weren't like they are now where they have these big corporations that are, that are the envy of the world and models of industry. Back then, mom and dad and aunt and uncle were working in their garage, polishing by hand casings and cutting and forming them and, mm-hmm. and doing that kind of stuff. And that you can't create a serious atomic bomb with that kind of imprecision. No. Now, I know that Japan would have put focus on getting the elements together to have that kind of precision, but I haven't seen anything that indicated they had actually achieved it yet. Right. So the, so the bomb could uh, the bomb could easily have been to Japan and usable by the end of November, which is about the same time the uh, United States would have had enough uranium enriched. It would have been November 28th. So it would be a very close race anyway. It was a very close race. It was much closer than the traditional history says it was. The traditional history says they thought it was a close race until after the war when they found out Heisenberg had failed and then they realized it wasn't close. Mm. And, and, and they tell that story to hide the fact that there was a uranium bomb option and we ended up getting it and used it on Japan ourselves. There's something, you know, when you when you. Yeah, it's, it's revealed now that we didn't even have to. Uh, I'm convinced they did it to send a signal to Stalin. That was a message to Stalin. Oh, I, I think it was more than a message because that's my my other scenario mm. that you mentioned. So that's the one scenario is that Japan could have gotten the bomb, would have used it, presumably, depending on how many bombs. It, they had, If the uranium on U-234 was weapons grade, the one thing that Dr. Bergen wasn't sure of is what grade enrichment it was, whether it was 10%, 20%, 90%. 90%. There's no way of knowing that from the documentation. He just knows it was enriched. If it was fully weapons grade enrichment, they had enough for 11 atomic bombs. Wow. If it was just what we call alpha phase enrichment, which is about 10%, they would have had enough for two atomic bombs, I think it is. Wow. Um, so, but imagine, imagine if they had eleven bombs, they would rule the eastern hemisphere. Yeah, and that's and that's one of the what that scenario goes to. Depending on how many bombs they had, they would just take the uh, take the first bomb, put it on one of those V uh, fours, and uh, put a kamikaze in it and fly it to uh, Iwo Jima. I guess was the next closest, uh, the closest American held base, Iwo Jima or Guam, I guess, and you know bomb them wait for it to cool down a couple weeks, set up another one, and just hopscotch back across the Pacific the way the U.S. had done trying to get to, to Japan. Because the U.S. strategy, rather than face Japan on, on its strengths in Hong Kong and China and Korea and where they had their strengths build up, the U.S. strategy was to island hop from one island to the next where there were a lot of smaller forces right. that could take over an island and continue their march and take over Honshu eventually from from the closest island. Saved a lot of lives, saved a lot of money, saved a lot of time if it worked, right? Mm -hmm. So that was, and I I explained that because that's relevant to the next scenario. The next scenario is that while Stalin wasn't really 
seriously, from what I could tell, working on or effectively achieving any kind of a nuclear program. He had made a commitment to the U.S. at Yalta that he would uh, declare war on Japan after the war in Europe was won. And, and eventually, I think later at, at Potsdam, he said he would declare war in the middle of August, which he actually did. He actually declared war between when the Hiroshima bomb was dropped on the 6th and when Nagasaki was dropped on the 9th. The other thing that's helpful to know, he had a one million man army on his east coast, which is the Pacific, well, toward the east coast on Manchuria and Mongolia. As soon as he declared war, his army attacked the Japanese in Manchuria and Mongolia. Mm-hmm. And within two weeks had taken over uh, Manchuria, Inner Mongolia. And- yeah, because the communists in China hadn't won at this point, right? So Right. Yeah. Well, they had, they had, the communists had won. The Soviet Union was, oh, no, they hadn't won China. You're correct. Mm-hmm. Right. Mao wasn't in power yet. Mm. So by winning Manchuria and Mongolia, Stalin established his right flank for an attack on Japan. Okay. Mm. Now, he's got three million more men in Eastern Europe. He leaves a few hundred thousand for the occupation. The rest of them, he started moving across uh, Siberia to the Pacific. The idea being, and this is my perspective, and I think it had to be the war planner's perspective, Uh, the U.S. war planner's perspective, despite what agreements he had made, once he turned and went after Japan, he was a few hundred miles across the Sea of Japan from Honshu, which is the main island of Japan. If he could put three million people, you know, the war in Europe ended May 8th, and three or four months he could have had his his army across. So let's say he's at the end of the summer, he jumps Honshu. He takes over Honshu, he takes over Japan, the government takes over Japan, takes over the whole thing. Mm. Okay, now put this into perspective. Yeah, mm. I'm looking at your picture here, so I know I can tell you don't look like you're old enough to have, have lived in the Cold War like we, like I did. But oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just look younger than my age actually. Oh, do you? Okay, yeah. well you're preserving very well. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Plus, my grandfather was involved in in World War Two, but so um, you understand. Yeah, so, I can get back to that in part two. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the uh, the Cold War would have been a very different animal when you think that it is very possible, and I think plausible, probably probable. If we hadn't gotten the bomb when we did, we wouldn't have been able to, the Soviets would have been able to jump Japan and overtake Japan and by so doing would have taken all their holdings. So by the end of, by the end of summer, early autumn, the Soviet Union would have had China, Korea, Southeast Asia, not the Philippines, because we've got the Philippines back, but I think they still, lots of portions of Malaysia. There was basically anything valuable, with the exception of the Philippines and Australia and New Zealand, anything valuable on the Asian Pacific Rim would have been in Soviet hands. So they'd have had Eastern Europe, all of the Asia Pacific Rim that was of worth, and there would, and the United States wouldn't have would still be months away from having a bomb, so there wouldn't have been any nuclear deterrent. Mm. So what that the historicity of that, in my perspective, means that our world right now would be very different if we had received that enriched uranium because the Soviet Union would have been and probably still would be the reigning year, uh, world power because we unless we decided, unless we got our nuclear weapons and decided to go to war with the Soviet Union, which would have been a hairy hairy decision to make, especially after just having a six-year world war, you know, 
No, but 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 that was the agenda all, all along. I mean, yeah. especially after Roosevelt were gone, that was the okay. agenda. But but I think Stalin would have no qualms of just nuking, excuse my French, the hell out of the, the West, basically, to to get power. I don't think so. I agree with you, but I think the uh, but he didn't have nuclear weapons yet. He wouldn't have them until uh, what was it, forty nine? He took Japan. Well, if he took Japan, he wouldn't. He, I don't know what he'd have there that Japan may have had left over. Uh, my tendency is to think that since the Japanese didn't retaliate with the nuclear weapon when we, when we bombed Hiroshima, mm. that whatever was sent over from Germany, whatever may have been sent over, I, I try to be careful not to make assumptions that aren't there. I don't have documentary proof that's what happened. But if in, other enriched uranium had gone to Japan, it seems to me like it probably was used in the tests they did, and they were just waiting for the uranium from from uh, U-234 to actually use it in combat and warfare. And you do, do mention that Japan made a statement that they had these weapons too after they yes. were after the first bomb, right? Yeah, they they did they did uh, they threatened to retaliate. Right. And because they had the because I think they had done the test and because they knew more was coming, but they didn't know it wasn't com- they thought it no. was coming but they didn't know it was. No, we'll we'll get to that. That's a very exciting part of this story. We, we but it's tied to Borman, so so we'll leave that for part 2, but you're very right. Well, I think you are that they were expecting it and they were simply I guess they were so desperate that they, you know, they lashed out. What would you do after such a horrific attack? Oh, yeah. And they were sitting on the hands, just biting the nails. Where is that damn U-boat? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. You had to think they were just holding their breath and... and uh... Yeah, so. yeah. I, I think Japan, just like Stalin, and, and I also think if Hitler got it first, he would have nuked everything. I think the same about Stalin, and I think also, to a large degree, the same about Japan. Uh, yeah. In fact, as much as I despise uh, the current power structure that we're living under now, if we rewind back then, especially before Roosevelt died, I think actually the most responsible part got the nuclear weapons. <laughs> I, I like to think that, but I know I'm I'm biased because, yeah, <laughs> because I'm an American. It's weird to use the two words in the same sentence, but I like to feel like the United States has been benevolent with. Their <laughs> Once you get past Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that was terrible. It was, and we can argue all day long about whether it was needed to be done, especially given what the option was, the new scenario with the Soviet Union. But I think of the four main powers that were left over, the other three, I think, would have used them. In a heartbeat, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And less judiciously than, than the United States did. But they, And I, I'm probably showing my bias. I like to think there was some ethics. <laughs> yeah, but, but we have uh, some evidence because it was a huge window where America had the capability but didn't use it uh, towards Soviet. When did the Soviet officially get it? The Soviets officially got their bomb thanks to Baron Manfred von Erdena in, in 1949. So I think it was four years after the war was over. So four years uh, where even Roosevelt was gone and uh, could have. I mean, could have. I mean, if, if it was Alan Dulles who was the president, they would probably have used it. <laughs> <laughs> probably. I think, uh, I think Truman... Truman made the decision to use the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs, but after that, he was kind of disgusted with the whole affair, and I think he kind of set a good example by saying, okay, we've ended the war, that's all we need to do with them, we're not doing any more. 
again, my bias may be showing, but it seems to me like it was illogical. No, man. I mean, he he must have been pressured to use it. Uh, obviously, oh, yeah. not, obviously not his plan personally, but I think, so. I think he was disgusted too and, and shocked and horrified of what they had on their hands here. Yeah, I, there's no evidence that he ever second-guessed himself about using him when and where he did because he wanted to end the war and he, and he believed it would save millions of lives. Of course, he had to rationalize it. Out in America, yeah. But but once the war was won, I don't think he. I think he would have found it repulsive to use it to try and gain any further dominion domination. If he was a normal human being, yes. not a power psychopath like some of the players we're discussing today, yep. then uh, you're seeing because one thing is the theory. E- even even after the nuclear, even in the fifties, people believed they could hide and duck, right? <laughs> but yeah. but seeing the terrible nature of this thing must have made any rational human being more careful about using it and they had four years and they didn't do it so i'm thinking if it was the other way around if it was stalin or hitler both of them would have used it yeah i'm sure well obviously hitler was caught in line to get one made i think there's no question in my mind at all that he would have used it Mm. But I think Germany was having the first tests because I've heard the the most likely scenario is that they tested it in the Baltics, Baltic Sea. Yes, that's what I've heard too. They're out on an island called Rügen, I think it's it's called. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I, I do also know that some shenanigans went on in the East Front, but that doesn't necessarily have to be nuclear weapons. That may have been other experimental weapons they were using because mainstream historians are hard pressed explaining the incredible uh, loss of uh, Russian life compared to German. to German, even even accounting for a superior quality in the... In the weaponry. Yeah. 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 So something was going on for sure. Yeah, I think so. I, I, as I mentioned earlier, maybe it was when we were talking before we went on air, but, but uh, my focus has been so much on my book itself that... Yeah. Uh, the scope kept growing and growing and growing, and I couldn't follow every every line. So I don't. Well, I I remember reading about some of the things that you referenced uh, going on in Russia that were kind of mysterious. They couldn't figure out what they were. Mm. Um, I didn't I didn't chase those because they weren't germane to my particular topic, which was the German efforts and how they affected the U.S. Manhattan Project. But but did you encounter the Kammlerstab in your research? I did not. I did not know about it until mm. uh, after I was done with my first two editions. And in the in the second edition, I didn't. It wasn't. <laughs> there's there's several reasons. Uh, like I said, I think they're they tend to support each other. But I didn't want to stop and start researching and doing a whole bunch of more stuff. I didn't have that left in me after the first time around. So. No. Plus, at that point, the Skoda works. What was the name? The Skoda. Yeah. 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 So it wasn't that known then. It came later, and Igor Vutkovsky, I think, broke the story. But I, I think your book is a paramount part of this story because, and we'll get to that in part two because I have some questions or insights regarding Kamler and and this thing. But I give you one thing now. If you look at the island. I call it Hemul, but Cooper, what did he, he, he said it in the way it's supposed to be said, uh, Hamul or something. It's it's this island in Patagonia, I think it is, outside of, um, of oh, yeah. Bariloche, right, where, right. where Ronald Richer went, a colleague of Kurt Debus, and where the buffoon um, Perron had his... Uh, I, I see a, a fusion here, because what it looks like is that... The Glock, at least one of them, went to Hemule, or however you, you say that name. And 
Then Perón was announcing that, hey, we have attained cold fusion. Supposedly there was nuclear research there. So I see a connection here. Unless the nuclear story was just a complete fabrication, like a sleight of hand to to put attention away from the more exotic Die Glocke. But if there is some kind of uh, connection here between those two kinds of research, there you have it. You have... You have the, the cold fusion thing and you have the deglocke in the same. Yeah, the cold fusion is the natural next step to, from the fusion. You know, they went from a fission bond to a fusion bomb, which was yeah. hot fusion, I guess you'd call it, if you call it cold fusion. So it's kind of the logical evolution, but beyond... And that's 75 years ago, and now, now it's starting to become credible in mainstream science. Yeah. We're 75 years behind, or... Or back then it was uh, in 47, I think, they started. So, yeah. I mean, wow. Well, Teller had actually, as far as the Manhattan Project is concerned, Teller had actually started working on uh, the fusion, the hydrogen bomb, even before the end of the war, he had started that. And it was trying to sell everybody to, to hold off on the fusion bombs and wait till they had the thermonuclear bombs. But they didn't wait. <laughs> no. So when... <coughs> Sorry. If the U-boat with the goods from Germany, U-boat U-234, that we're going to go more into in part two, if that actually hadn't gone to America, when do you estimate that they would have uh, attained something viable? The United States? Yeah, Manhattan. As I mentioned earlier, as far as the enriched uranium bomb, uh, which was one dropped on Hiroshima, they couldn't have had the material any earlier than November 28th because one of the interesting I think interesting parts of my research was the the uh, I actually was the first person, and I know this because I broke the classification seals on the boxes that held these documents in them. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually the first person to actually see after the war the accounting of the documents that gave the daily output of the enriched uranium, the beta calutrons, which was the final process of the enriched uranium. And in my research, I found that. Gross had made a decision. They decided to have, I think, if I remember right, it was uh, four alpha calutrons and three beta calutrons. And the alpha would, would enrich to 10% and then go into beta. And they'd enrich to 75 to 80%, maybe 90% if they got a really good run. And that was the bomb-grade uranium. They didn't add any additional calutrons from the end of, of uh, December 1944 to the end of the war. So there was no reason, and they were getting them as, as efficient. They, when you look at the graph, it's just a straight line. They were as efficient as they could be, and there was no way to increase the enriched uranium output to any point significantly prior to November 28th having a bomb. So if you if you make that the end point in which they had the bomb, then you got, I think they took two weeks to turn it over to the metallurgical labs and fabricate it into the slugs. And then it was two weeks by sea to Tinian and then waiting for the weather to deliver. So you're talking about probably the earliest would have been the beginning of 1946 before they'd have had a bomb if wow. they'd have kept going and they were gone. That late. Yeah. So that means that uh, Germany and Japan would have beaten them to it if they would have a, a larger window to to complete. It's speculation, but yes, it's possible to think that that which was on U-234, that's what I said earlier, that which was on U-234 had gotten to Japan with the German expertise. It's viable. It's plausible. It's not beyond reason to think that Japan would have used the German atomic bomb 
beat the United States in the Pacific and got ready to use it in Europe. And by virtue of that, Germany would rise from the battlefield ashes like the Phoenix. And, and yeah. uh, you know, and there's another discussion scenario you could have about, okay, would Japan be happy to keep the East and Germany happy to keep the West and have their spheres of influence and rule the world that way or would they then go after each other oh i don't think if japan get got it first i think they would honor the agreement actually it was a, it would be a matter of uh, honor for them well i i think they would and i think they'd also honor it because they got it from germany and i think right. acting as allies i think and the other part of that is somebody somebody i was talking to kind of challenged me and said no they both try to rule the world and i was like you know, even nowadays with the technology we have for command and communications, it's, it would be really, really hard to extend command and communications lines around the world and keep control of things, you know. Yeah, it, yeah. and I, th I think the other way around, if Germany didn't break their back, they would probably uh, keep it for themselves. But if you consider the situation, they would have to include Japan because – uh, they did. They, 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 they like I said, they broken their back, and they couldn't rule alone, even with nuclear weapons. They needed Japan's manpower and uh, back. I think so too. I think it would have been a natural process for them to work together from them going forward. It would have made it easier for both of them. Yeah. I think we should uh, just count our blessings here. Otherwise, uh, you would be speaking Japanese now, and I would be speaking German. <laughs> at least, at least it, you would be conducted in yeah. good knows yeah. one of those languages. The other scenario, we could both be speaking Russian. So yeah, yeah. So uh, no, um, things went as they went, and uh, but it, it is interesting to 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 see you know people take things for granted and when we learn about these less known aspects of history we it, it, it gives us a pause for pondering um, like you do in your excellent epilogue where you lay out these scenarios and yeah it's a massive piece of work but it's not important if we don't understand what impact it had and how it changed and what we should be looking at to to decide future policy from what we learn from it yeah Precisely. Um, we have a lot of stuff to cover concerning Martin Bormann, and I, and I think we should do that now, because okay. uh, it will be a much longer part than this part, and now we're coming to the part where I'm more engaged in, and that you people will more easily follow. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to follow this part. <laughs> So we'll go in depth into Martin Bormann, who he was. And, and by the way, I, I have to tell them, Carter, that uh, uh, when before we began the entire show, we were discussing some very essential stuff about Martin Bormann, you know, or post-war stuff. Right. You know, and, and what happened? Bam! Power cut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see if we spill the beans too much. Maybe the spinner will try to put another <laughs> obstacle in a way. But yeah. you know what I say: truth will out. So Still, truth will win out. I agree. I believe that. No. Mm, now, I think we should start by understanding who Martin Bormann is, because you've done. 
the very clever thing in part three of your book where you try to tie together all these loose ends and all this technical information and why it matters. And you start by giving a very, very good profile, I'd say, on Martin Bowman. So could you give us the the short version here? Oh, goodness, it's been a while since I've read that part of the book. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, Martin Bormann, he was uh, was really Hitler's alter ego. Hitler, they had, when you go back through their childhood, they had a lot of kind of parallel things that happened, and then they had a lot of really opposite things that happened. And what it did was it, it made them into each other's alter ego. So, and but what I mean by that is Hitler, as we all know, was really a, a, a genius at speaking and providing a vision and enlivening the masses and a political genius as well. A lot of people like to diss Hitler and, and he was an evil guy. There's no doubt about it. But he was a genius as well. Some of the things he did, what he was, what he pulled off, you just have to look at and say, you know, regardless of the inspiration, it was brilliant. Or at the very least, it took some major guts, you know. Mm. Martin Bormann, on the other hand, he was uh, very secretive. He was your quintessential, with a capital Q, bureaucrat. Mm-hmm. Um, and he knew, he understood that power, a big part of power had to do with how you control people's lives and, and the levers and the things behind the scenes that make things work. That's what, what Borman did. So, so Hitler could stand up and give a speech and get everybody on his side. And on the other side of that, those who weren't on his side, Borman had the Gestapo and all these other little kind of secret uh, organizations that that he ran, and not so secret, Mm. um, to put the teeth into what Hitler was trying to accomplish when people weren't willing to follow. But he must have had uh, quite a a psychological insight, too, because his schemes, because one thing is to be a bureaucrat – yeah. But he was he was more than just a bureaucrat, I think. He was also, uh, maybe better to say he was the head of the bureaucracy because he was such a brilliant plotter and planner. He, he really was. Uh, bureaucrat might not have been the right word that I used. Uh, Eichmann was maybe more of a bureaucrat. Yeah. Orman was, he knew how to put together and control massive bureaucracies and he knew how to force his vision down upon them. Now, that's different than your standard bureaucrat who takes an order and executes it. Yeah. He's the guy who's envisioning, okay, how do we get where we need to be? And he creates that vision or borrows that vision or works it with, with Hitler and says, how do we take this vision and functionalize it through the powers of the state? Exactly. So, so where Hitler used his creativity in the great visions and, and big pictures, he was mm-hmm. he was complete inept when it came to the practical matters. Not, not only completely inept, but he hated the details. And yeah, that's what Norman <laughs> loved, and so they were a great, you know, for what they were trying to accomplish. Symbiotic creature. Yes, they were very symbiotic. They were a great uh, uh, pair to to be working together, and 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 Borman because he is so not well known by people outside of your audience nobody understands that hitler wouldn't have been nearly what he was without borman mm. yeah <clears throat> because borman took his creativity and put it into implementation exactly of hitler's hitler's um yeah stuff. He, w- he was where the rubber rubber meets the road as we say here in the states yeah, yeah right <laughs> but he was also a psychopath and a murderer uh, mm-hmm. Much, much like Stalin, you mentioned in the book that people compare Stalin and Bormann, and and that's warranted because both used party positions to rise to power. Both abused p- 
party positions to rise to power. Neither of them would have gotten to power if it wasn't for the fact that they schemed and plotted. And, and we can only give like adjectives here. People have to read books like yours to see how. But right. they did this. But one very big difference is that where Stalin liked to be you know, in the spotlight. Yeah. Bormann preferred the shadows. Where, where Stalin were like a, a lion, maybe. Bormann was more like a spider. And, and how, how apt isn't isn't the name Die Spinne? Yeah. I mean, if, if it's a network, post-war network, yeah. Bormann is the spider. <laughs> he's, and he's the master of networks. That's, uh, <laughs> you know, that's all those bureaucracies there he he just built networks that they functioned some of them they didn't all function the same but he knew how to make them work however they function he knew what to do he knew like you said he was good at reading people and understanding how to control them um he just he just had all those elements that hitler didn't have and when they combined together with the same vision deadly cocktail very potent yeah yeah and uh, at one point in his um very early in his career, he picked up a mini Bormann, I'd say, Gestapo Müller. Yeah, yeah. Very. And uh, those two interwove in their own fates because where, where I regard like guy like Himmler, right, who, who was uh-huh. half a kook, where I regard Himmler and Hess as idealists and ideologues, and they were, you know, more sold on Hitler's vision than right. <laughs> even himself, right? Right. I kind of regard Müller and Bormann, and like you say, they're Aparachkis, but they, yeah. I don't think in their heart of hearts they really care that much for the Nazi vision. Uh, and if you look, at, you probably know about these, I don't know, I don't think you write about them, but these early stories about Hitler's niece, where Mueller yeah. rises to power through his dealings to cover up and stuff. I do write about that, and, okay. and it's under the Bormann's uh, tutelage, and Borman kind of mentors uh, at, at one point. I don't know how much you want to get into that, but but feel free. We have plenty of time. Gale, I I believe it's pronounced Gailey. It was the nickname Angela Ravel mm. was Hitler's niece and also his girlfriend at one time, and she ended up being dead. And many people thought Hitler did it. And uh, anyway, we won't go through all the details. But Heinrich Mueller was the chief of the detectives in Munich at the time where it happened, and he was anti-Nazi and trying to shut down the Nazis at the time. Mm. Uh, Robel dies. Mueller starts investi- has, has a, a guy investigating it. Borman steps in, and when it's all over, Mueller goes to Russia to work with the uh, KGB to learn how to be a, a secret policeman, and uh, a- and comes back to, to head the. So he's schooled by Stalin. Wow. He's schooled by Stalin's KGB. Yeah, under Martin Borman's sponsorship. And so he owed a lot to Borman, and I think you're right. He 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 was kind of a mini Borman, and I think he was very pragmatic relative to the Nazi Party. I don't know that he was a full blown Nazi. I think he just was doing what he wanted to do to to get ahead. Yeah, and, and the same thing when he was an anti Nazi, that didn't stick deep either, right? He was just an a prag- right. opportunist. Yeah, but I do think Borman was an avowed died in the wall Nazi. I, I do believe that, like th- that he genuinely thought that, uh, let's say. Um, the Jews were, uh, you know, undermanch and and uh, at the same yeah. time the, yeah. the big enemy. Well, in that case, I wouldn't be surprised if he was behind the final solution. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised either. I've never heard anything about Bormann's action. I've never heard anything about what Bormann said about the Jews, but I know he was fully invested in the Nazi social nationalism aspect of, of Nazism, and uh, because Goering wasn't. 
that's all on the idea. I mean, one famous statement from Goering is, I decide who's a Jew or not. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. We, and we know even Hitler did that. First of all, there's these rumors that this was a homoerotic relationship between Hitler and his uh, childhood friend who became his chauffeur eventually after Himmler tried to, because Himmler was a rabiat anti-Semite, no question about that. Oh, yeah. Yes. But um, both Hitler and Goering protected Jews that they personally knew. And uh, a little known fact, actually, is that the German military was full of Jews, actually, even generals. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And if it was up to Himmler, he would have none of that. Nothing to do with it, yeah. But I don't know about Bormann. I don't, uh, like I said, I've never, uh, I've studied a lot about Bormann. So I think if he was really a rabid anti-Semite, I would have seen something there. But I never saw any evidence of that. But I do, I saw plenty of evidence that he was, in every other kind of philosophical aspect of Nazism, uh, died in a wall. So. Mm. Because I imagine that if he grew up in Russia, he would uh, be like uh, a similar character only on on, on the, the Soviet side. Yeah, yeah, uh, probably that he would be probably as, as sold and devoted to the Stalinist course as he was. Yeah, because one thing you do convince me of in your book is that he had a genuine interest in a loyalty, I'd say, to Hitler. Yeah, I think that's true. I think. Uh, I think there, at some point he could have, I don't know about throwing him over is the right word, but I think he could have taken things his own way. And, and I, I think he sort of did. Yeah, that's what he did. But he could have done it in rebellion against Hitler, and Hitler wouldn't have been able to stop him. But he didn't do that. I think he just he played it to, nice with Hitler and continued to kind of toe the party line, although sometimes he'd warp it the way he wanted it to go, right? Yeah, he did get his own ideas. Of course, we don't know. Uh, we can't pretend to know his heart. Yeah. And there's arguments for why he would keep Hitler. But we get back to that. That's much further down the timeline. Yeah, his machinations tended to be toward other people and, and keeping control of them and, and keeping his own power base. But he he didn't use them against Hitler, although he had plenty of ammunition, too, if he wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I guess he knew that he wasn't very popular. In fact, that he was hated. And, and he also knew that he owed his life to Hitler because if Hitler hadn't protected him, he would be taken down immediately. Yeah, I, I think he knew that. And I, I think he knew anybody who is that kind of person, I think, understands that that's the payoff. Yeah. People are going to hate you. You're, that's OK, because you get what you want out of it. And you can if you got the power, you can take care of them anyway. And that's how treated life. Yeah. I actually read a quote by him, and I wish I could remember the exact words, but basically he said, hey, the world is nature. It's We're all animals, and whoever's the most vicious animal wins. And, and, and Those weren't his exact words, but that was the essence of what he said. And it was clear that, and he basically said, so I'm going to be the most vicious animal. That's That was his approach to life. Yeah, and you do give a very convincing, uh, um, should we say, um, background to how uh, Bormann became Bormann. Yeah. You do follow him uh, through his uh, early years and uh, the the, bo <laughs> the book is worth reading just for that. I feel like it was important to trying to... So Bormann is just, you know, for the everyday historian and most people you talk about Bormann and they, their face goes pale and they don't want to talk and stuff like that and I felt like there's no way I can make the case for what I'm going to make in this book if I can't make Bormann real and help them understand mm -hmm. who he was and why he was the way he was and how he worked with Hitler. If all those pieces aren't in place, they're just going to continue to blow him off and it was important they didn't because he's central to the book. 
Yeah. He's central to the history. The book is a reporting of it. Yeah, I'd say much of your argument is resting upon a person who can fit their story like that. Because if you can't make them understand Bormann's part in this, you know, you can't just replace Bormann with any other Nazi in this scenario. Right. And you can't just say Bormann did this. Because people are going to say, well, Borman, nobody knows who Borman is. Nobody knows what he did. We believe that. And they throw it out yeah. the door before they even give the story a chance. You know, Except for his Western counterpart, Alan Dulles. He <laughs> realized very early who he was dealing with here. Yeah, they both recognized that each other, if they yes. got in a jam, they both recognized each other, kind of the second in command. Borman wasn't Roosevelt's second in command, but he was in Europe, and he was yeah. in a... Eisenhower was in command of the military, but but uh, Dulles was in command of kind of the intelligence and the and the brain side. Oh, I'd say he he was a woman. He was the real power uh, eventually, right. uh, up until the time of Kennedy. Yeah, exactly. Borman and Dulles both independently identified the other as the person they needed to go to if they if they needed to have negotiations. Exactly, and and in the same way, I think that. Dulles did work for the interest of his own side, so to speak, but obviously he has little to no concern about the ideals, whereas Roosevelt, <laughs> for all intents and purposes, he seems to be genuinely, in fact, I'm going to quote Roosevelt in your book later, because he, he seems to be having some genuine um, ideals here, whereas Dulles was just, I mean, if Dulles was brought up in Nazi Germany, he would be a Nazi. And that's how I regard Bormann. And I'm not surprised, uh, Carter, that Bormann realized his part of the um, hybrid of the symbiosis with Hitler. I'm more surprised that Hitler realized that he needed Bormann in the same way. Of course, and at the end, it was obvious, but... Yeah, I don't think going in, Hitler realized that he needed Bormann. What Bormann did, Bormann just just did so much for Hitler of the things that Hitler hated mm. doing and was so effective at making things happen that I think it, at first Hitler just kind of, as a spoiled child, said, oh, that's good, I don't have to deal with that. But And I think over the course of time, as he watched what happened, he began to realize how important what Bormann was doing was really to the cause and really making things happen. And that's when he started to kind of embrace Borman and see him as, as more than just his helper, but as, as a, a, another piece of his, I say, I hate to say of him, but another piece of the other piece of what of the brain trust that needed to make the Nazi regime happen successful. Yeah. And Bormann's rise to power was so, what were you, uh, the opposite of, and, you know, the soldiers, the military, they have honor, they have all these ideals. But Bormann used the essential schemes. I mean, um, yeah. today we today people enjoy these things in, in television, like Game of Thrones and stuff, right? But yeah. here you have it in real life. And his first company, we, we talked in the backstage clip where I asked you the obligatory question about Rudolf Hess. We did mention it there that he, Hess was the first one he had to take down because Hess was the deputy Führer. Mm -hmm. And he managed to weasel himself in and replace Hess. Yeah. If Hess hadn't, if Hess hadn't pulled that wacko stunt of his. Right. He would be a, I don't know if, well, maybe Bowman will find another backdoor, but that is essential. Yeah, it is essential. I think Borman would have found another backdoor. Borman would have pulled it off one way or the other, I, yeah. I think. But it, what's another interesting piece of that to understand is that Borman 
didn't apply for the job as Hess's chief assistant, kind of Adolf Hitler assigned Bormann to be uh, Hess's chief assistant. He basically said, you're going to take Bormann. He's your your main deputy. Um, So Hitler actually by then was already realizing how important Bormann was to the cause, even though he wasn't in the top echelons yet. Yeah, but maybe some people speculate that Bormann had goods on Hitler. Like, for instance, if Hitler knew that, let's say Bormann told Hitler, hey, relax, I'm going to take care of this Geli, Gebi, whatever her name was, affair. I have a man. Right. Don't worry. Right. And and from that on, he has leverage over Hitler. Yeah. Even if he doesn't play that card. Right. Hitler knows that he knows and Hitler also knows he can trust him. Absolutely. And I bring that up in the book. Mm. And there's other elements as well. Um, Some of the things, uh, so Bormann spent some time, as most people know, even most people who know anything about Hitler know that he was an artist when he was a young man. And uh, among some of the artworks that he did, it was some, I guess you'd call them pornographic. um, Right. I remember reading that. Really. (laughs) Yeah, they were done. I don't know if they say just I don't know. Anyway, they were not the kind of thing that once Hitler had come to power, he came to power presenting an image of a man who was wholesome and fair and virile and uh, uh, healthy. And he was and he was a demigod, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so when Borman found out about those pictures, he actually went out and found out who had bought him and bought him back and, and kept them. One or two of them have leaked out, um, but most of them have been destroyed or still hiding somewhere. But that's another thing that if Borman wanted to, he could say, hey, look what Hitler did and mm. ruin Adolf Hitler, but he didn't. No. He kept it secret. Right? Exactly. So in his uh, ascension to power, he had uh, many obstacles, two of them. We mentioned Hess, but he was early outmaneuvered and Hess wasn't that bright anyway. Uh. Hess was, uh, his brightness wasn't in psychology and scheming. It was more in, uh, I guess, the more spiritual side of things. But that was was already an anachronism. Now it was wartime and it hardcore tangible stuff that matters but then you have a leftover from the old uh, nazi time like himmler who had managed to ascend to power and played out all his theatrical visions and notions and ideas in in ss and then you had goering and and both of them were you know the nazi's uh, power structure was deliberately a a little chaotic Uh, if, if hitler had a clear hierarchy it could be dangerous for him so he was clever they were fighting for power. And so Bormann must have realized, I have to take out Himmler and Goering. So how did he do that? Well, initially, for both of them, it wasn't so much. He eventually did take them out by the end of the war. But he controlled them throughout the war. Um, he didn't really take them out, but he, he controlled them. And he primarily did that through, uh, oh, what's the word? He paid them off. He just... He gave him fantastic amounts of money. He was in charge of the whole economy of the Reich, and he had all kinds of schemes, financial schemes, that he was really brilliant at, mm. too. A lot of people don't like that. But he was making – Hitler became a millionaire off of schemes that Bormann executed for him, one of them being Bormann uh, – again, we're going to talk about Richard Arnesorg, the head of the post office. Bormann told Arnesorg, hey, you need to be paying Hitler a percentage of every stamp for using his likeness on the stamps, right? <laughs> Well, stamps, you know what, a, a few pennies, but when you're selling hundreds of millions of them yeah. a, a year, uh, it made Hitler a millionaire in a short amount of time. That 
that particular thing, a scheme alone. And Borman got a portion of that as well. So Borman uh, was very well off himself. And that's how the world works today. Right. That's how it's always worked. <laughs> but back then, it was uh, innovative. Right. So Borman, uh, my, my point in saying that was to just kind of validate that Borman was very successful. He knew how to handle money. He knew how to make money. And he had no morals, so he could make a lot of money in ways that other people wouldn't do it, you know. And so yeah. he had he had these funds set up. I won't go into all the details of all these funds that he had set up, but he had funds worth. It's in your book. People can read it. Yeah, very in interesting. Book, hundreds yeah. of millions of Reichsmarks. Mm. And uh, so he basically bribed Himmler uh, particularly, but also Goring. He would uh, give them no interest loans. He'd give them huge amounts of uh, gifts of huge amounts of money. And Himmler himself acknowledged he went to Bormann and, and Himmler had a, a, a mistress who had, had had a child by him. Mm. And Himmler went to Bormann and said, you know, I'd really like to be closer to to Hitler. Can you and, and I want my mistress to be close to me. Can you loan me some money? For uh, to build a, a chateau up on the Berchtesgaden, so I'm close to Hitler, and she's there with me. And, and Bormann <laughs> lent him the money. And later, toward the end of the war, Bormann said, "You know, I, I, I'm sorry." Uh, Himmler said, "You know, it was really my job to get rid of Bormann, but I was never in a position to do yeah. so. I couldn't. I, there was nothing I could do that he didn't have the goods on me." Was essentially what he was saying. And Goring, not as much, but pretty was in a similar situation. Yeah, because uh, to me, it seems that. Uh one of the one of the brilliant aspects of of Bormann's power grab was that they never saw him coming right. until it was too late right so when i say take them down i'm talking about their power not their right. not the position or, or their part of the whole because that would be too obvious for Bormann if he actually got right. rid of them like hess well, he would be alone, right? And and everybody would have their eyes on him. But his his mastery was that right. they didn't even know about him until after the war. <laughs> what a brown eminence he was. But he hated. He was a secretive dude, and 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 yeah. you know he couldn't go along eliminating all the leaders that were his competition because he needed them yeah. to, to control the country because he didn't want to be the Hitler standing in front of everybody. That wasn't how he worked. So he he took them down by controlling them and uh, and having them in position that when he needed to, if he needed to, he could take them out, which he did when the time came. Exactly. Yeah, that really sums it up right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, but there is another aspect to Bormann that is not so known either, and that is that he's actually quite a player. <laughs> uh, high sexual, uh, how do you say in English? Um, a drive, is that what you say? Is it, yeah, yeah. Urge, sex urge. Strong sex drive, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he had a pretty powerful libido, and he, uh, what's weird is his wife supported him in it. Now, he had nine children, I think it was, from his wife. Jeez. His wife was the, actually the daughter of the top Nazi judge in the land, a guy by the name of Walter Buch. Right. He, he was very early on uh, a Nazi, right? Not, Nazi, big-time Nazi early on. And in fact, um, it's interesting because in Bormann and Goethe's Bormann's wife, in their wedding pictures, Walter Buch, the Nazi judge, and Adolf Hitler are both in the pictures. Hitler was a witness at the wedding and... and uh, I think it was, his, I can't remember if he's his best man or not, but anyway, uh, you see them all there and they're both a lot younger, you know, but mm. so Borman, yeah, he had a pretty strong libido. He was famous for within the inner circles that knew of him for having all kinds of starlets and dancers and actresses and very beautiful women. And he wasn't anything to look at, really. He was, mm. uh, some people call him 
compared to a pot-bellied pig. Uh, yeah, but you know what? Uh, uh, what's his face? Kissinger, I think it was said. Uh, uh, power is the greatest aphrodisiac. That's right. He did say it, and I think that's exactly the explanation for Borman. I think uh, he just, you know, there are women who that is irresistible to, and so that's uh, what they go for. And and I think Goethe felt in some kind of uh, strain, I think it, it bespeaks the psychological miscasting of all of them, but Gerda's support of him, not only being unfaithful, but lining up women for him and all this kind of Jeez. stuff. It's, it's just, uh, it, it's kind of bizarre for the rest of us who live normal lives, but but yeah, that's he was built that way, that's how he was, and he had no compunctions about being that way. No, but that's significant because uh, even uh, you know Goebbels, Himmler, all these dudes had it, it went with the territory to have a bunch of mistresses. Sure. Uh, that wasn't unique for Borman. Yeah, but I seriously doubt that the other guys got their wives on board. Ah. That just shows <laughs> how he managed to wield his power and influence. He, yeah, brainwashing her or, or, or picking a, a woman who would actually who would do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's hard to know the details, but but yeah, there's. It's very singular. He lived a very singular lifestyle in so many ways. But but you, I don't think it's coincidental that she was. I think he, if it it wasn't a arranged marriage, but I think he deliberately married into power. It was a yeah. part of his ascension. It was part of how he lived. It, yeah. was, it was yeah. It's how he did things. His friends he picked. Well, if you call, could call him friends, and he, it's weird, he did have one or two true friends, and one of them was the Baroness uh, Tronfelds, oh. who was, uh, he actually, after World War One, he went to work for her at a very early age, became her land agent, uh, responsible for all of her uh, estates, which I can't remember the, the number, but it was in the hundreds of thousands of acres, as I recall, or hectares. And by 21 or 22, he was responsible for her whole estate and a land manager. So, and that gives, you know, a lot of people say, no, Borman, you know, they're talking about how Borman, you know, is this and Borman is that, but he couldn't have been any of those things. But, you know, he showed early on that he was willing and able to uh, take control of things in ways that very few people could do it and manage them and, and administer them. Um, and he did that for, for uh, the Baroness Traunfeldts and they became friends Right up until the day he disappeared. They still corresponded with one another regularly. He named one of his daughters after her. So he did have he did have one or two close friends. So you don't think this was just yet another chess move? I mean, one thing is befriending powerful people who can help him. If, he, if it was like a poor nobody, I would believe you. <laughs> I, I think it was both. I think initially, okay. I think it's how he operated. He would he would look for the opportunity, he'd get the opportunity, and he'd go with it. But every now and then, somebody like Hitler, like Baroness Traunfels, would see him for what he was and appreciate him in return. Right. And so they would become friends. Um, I think that's how Hitler and he were. I think that's how the Baroness and he were. There may have been others. Those are the only two ones I feel clearly that were fell in that category. Right, right. And and you do go into how he made uh, gold out of stone very early on. <laughs> yeah. And uh, even though some of those stories may be a little inflated, I don't know. Um, but at some point, uh, uh, we, we do know he has these abilities. And at some point, he launches... Let's just fast forward until the war. Uh, then there's something called Operation Fireland. Mm -hmm. What is that? 
Operation Fireland was a idea, it was kind of a preliminary idea, embryo of a bigger idea he had later. But it was basically, he found out that the SS were, were capturing all kinds of valuables, whether it was uh, art treasures from all over Europe, whether it was the gold they were getting out of the teeth of concentration camp victims, whether it was financial fiduciary instruments that had value, stocks, bonds, whatever else, licenses, any of that kind of stuff. Um, he found out the SS was, as they would overrun a country, was collecting all these things. And, and so he basically, and I think this is one of the things that Himmler, you know, Himmler was trying to collect them for himself and his own SS. And Borman basically <laughs> said, sorry, you can't do that. And Himmler wasn't in a position to, to, say, to tell him, you know, fooey on you, I can do it. Amazing. The head of and, the SS, huh? Yeah. And so, you know, there's, I think there was still a significant percentage by that, I'm going to guess 25 to 30 percent that stayed in Himmler's and SS hands that Borman yeah. didn't get his hands on. But the vast majority appears to, he appears to have gotten control of. He also, uh, he set up uh, uh, with, from what I can tell, Dernitz's uh, help, he set up, I believe it was three what they called dark U-boats or black U-boats. And they were, they operated out of Cadiz and, um, Oh, I can't remember the other city, Virgo, uh, on the Atlantic uh, and Portugal or Spain. I'm sorry, in Spain. Yeah. And the um, and so what they would do is they'd collect these treasures. They'd put them on a junker's cargo plane. They'd fly them to these two cities, put them in these U-boats and ship them to Argentina because Argentina had a strong – long before the war, long before Nazism, Argentina had a strong German colony there. And and plus Peron, as you mentioned earlier, was very favorable to Germans and to Nazis when it arose. So he sent all this stuff down to, to the southern tip of Argentina. And this was when? This started um, fairly early. I say early. I want to say probably in 42 or 43. I don't remember exactly. Right. I don't have the book in front. But, but even before you could smell which way the wind were blowing, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was just his nature to do this kind of thing. And so he just, he just, of course, he has a backup plan and he has a yeah. plan C and a plan D. Yeah. Primary, secondary, tertiary, quaternary, however many. Yeah, nobody's <laughs> going to tell me that a guy who takes measures years, even before the war is lost, yeah. nobody's going to tell me that that guy he didn't think about doesn't have a plan to save his own ass. Yeah. I mean, what would he do with all this money yeah. <laughs> if he wouldn't control it? Huh? It wasn't charity. Exactly. So that was Operation Fireland, and it was called Operation Fireland because it went down to Tierra del Fuego, which means land of fire. Right. And, and he told Hitler what he was going to do, and Hitler gave him his blessing, said, you know, you're going to need it to, to start the Fourth Reich if we don't win this one. And that's, uh, you know, that's what he did. So that was kind of a preliminary program that he did it was worth uh, probably several hundred millions of reich marks it's hard to put a number on it yeah um but it was val a lot of value a lot of value there i mean if you, if you add up uh, like the hundreds of tons of gold the, the unique art yeah. or, uh, you know the cartels the corporation the banking um all this stuff. I've heard some like Gerard Williams of uh, the Grey Wolf approach to this story that we're going to interview later. He, I think he, he estimated uh, a few billion dollars all in all, I'm, yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, on, on Operation Fireland, I think that's probably logical. I've heard, I, I can't remember the numbers that I gave in the book. The lowest I think I heard was 70 million, and that seems really, really low to yeah, me. Yeah. Um, yeah, that can't count for everything. Yeah, I think it gets up into the billions. Uh, so two billion sounds. As I was, you said two billion. 
Uh, four or two, I don't remember. Anyway, that sounds logical to me. But I mean, if you have two billion or four billion, it doesn't matter. There's no you'll make ten times more money from the same. <laughs> right. And the other thing we're talking in 1945, Reich Marx. Um, oh yeah. It, you gotta you gotta multiply that by probably fifteen or twenty to get to its currency today. So, plus uh, back then there wasn't that many competitors. But right. but after all, they did plunder Europe, and was that Bormann's idea? I mean, wasn't it Bormann's idea to uh, extract gold and stuff even from the teeth of concentration camp victims? Was that Bormann? I don't know that I've read anything about that being Borman. I don't think it was because the way I perceived the records that I read and what I read about it, it sounded like it was being done and he found out about it right. and said, oh, oh, good, I can go get that. And he did. So he just hijacked it. <laughs> yeah, he just hijacked it. So I don't think, you know, I don't think he was thinking about that. But as soon as it came to his mind, he's like, oh, okay, somebody's doing smart stuff and I'm going to be one step smarter. <laughs> Uh, that's so in character. Yeah. But you do mention at some point he deliberately starts to monopolize all the profits being made in the Third Reich. Yeah, he the connection to Bormann isn't made clearly by the traditional press, but it was a Bormann operation. But even the Wall Street Journal has, had, has run a couple of articles about the, the industrial conference in Strasbourg that was called. And they brought together... All the, with the exception of I.G. Farben, and there was a reason they didn't include I.G. Farben, which is basically that Borman and Schmidt, who is the head of I.G. Farben. Um, I, I thought it was Fritz Thyssen. Uh, no, Fritz Thyssen was he was a, a, a head of a munitions work and did some other stuff. But and he early on in the war, Thyssen was uh, actually he wrote some bad stuff against Hitler, and Hitler had him thrown into a concentration camp, and and Borman. This is kind of a side note, but Borman yeah. took him out of the concentration camp and put him and his wife in a private home outside of the concentration camp and kept him there throughout the war with the express purpose of Thiessen was friends with Alan Dulles and he understood that when he needed to get in touch with Alan Dulles, Thiessen was the guy he needed to go to. So that's kind of a side story, but but it's relative. No, but it is very relative. Um, Dr. Farrell has an interesting uh, speculation analysis of that, and that is that when Borman realized well, he needed a plan B anyway, mm-hmm. but they were thinking ahead, right? They needed people on their side, and what better way, Yeah. Uh, let's say, a guy like Thyssen, okay, now you're going to be an anti-Nazi, we're going to quote-unquote punish you, but of course the punishment isn't <laughs> anything else than living in a villa outside of a concentration camp, you know. No yeah, reason. and I think it makes a point. After the war, he's, you know... They're, exactly. Say, hey, Borman took care of me. He's not that bad a guy. And it's the kind of, you know, it's the kind of thing he would do. No, but, but the approach here is that Tyson is in on it. That they, yeah. uh, it's just a pony show that, oh, look, he's an anti-Nazi. Yeah. So after the war, Tyson would surface to, to power. Yeah. And they would have, like, clean people in the system. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but it's very it's makes it's it's very logical. Very Bormanish, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. So back to the uh, to the Strasbourg conference. Yeah. So he had all the major German corporations invited to this hotel, and it was top secret. It's so top secret that they they rented 
the floors, not only the floor of the room that they had the meeting on, but the floors above and below it and all the rooms around it <laughs> so that there couldn't be anybody listening in. They had uh, what for then was pretty sophisticated electronic devices to test to see whether they were being bugged, all kinds of stuff. Anyway, so they, had, they brought all these guys in. And the long and short of it was that Germans, the Nazis had a, a law in force called the Treason Against the Nation Law. And what that was was a law that said, Anybody or any company, any manager or director, you know, president, ruler of any company that trades, does business with entities, nations that are enemies to the Reich or any company that exchanges its currency for and uses currency, any other currency than the German Reichmark mm. would be executed as wow. capital, capital yeah. punishment. Um and so the Strasbourg conference, Bormann had his operatives there who ran the conference basically say, okay, you're all here. Many of the people we're talking about, many of the guys who ran these companies were already doing this stuff and already with the unwritten permission, shall we say, or at least of turning a blind eye by the Nazi party because the Nazi party wanted the hard cash that that could all bring in. But at the Strasbourg conference, they said, okay, if we find you guilty of this, we're going to use the – unless you help us, we're going to execute you using the treason against the nation law. <clears throat> but we won't apply that to you if you agree to allow the – if you do two or three different things. The first one was you got to have a Nazi party representative chosen by the Nazi party in every – part of your company that we designate. Wow. I don't know how granular that got down in, but there were every company had, I got to assume a few hundred Nazis in there and their job was to monitor funds, uh, currencies, uh, anything, any asset, any value that was coming into the company. Not a penny is going to go by them. Wow. Right. So yeah. their job was just to kind of audit and see what was going on. And then the other thing, the major thing that they did was that Borman told them, we want you to take every asset of your company, maximize it, liquidate it to the extent you can, and turn it over to your Nazi party representatives. And then he had that economy, that big, huge portion of the German economy was exported secretly out to 750 different corporations around the I say around the world. It was around the world, but it was primarily either in neutral countries or in countries that are allied with, with, yeah. with Germany, but that they knew weren't going to pay the price after the war. And the reason it's, it's worth stating that the reason Borman did this was he didn't want to have a, a copy. The same thing happened that happened after the First World War, where when they lost the war, the Allies made the reparations so steep that it put yeah. Germany into bankruptcy. And that's why Hitler, frankly, that's why Hitler got the German people to follow him. It's because he had a plan to get out of that. And he was the only one who did. Otherwise, they were taking basket carts full of millions of Reichmarks to the store to buy a loaf of bread. Make Germany great again. Yeah. Mm. So the plan for Bormann, was, he took this economy. I, I haven't been able to quantify it. I wish I had. I just ran out, ran out of steam, and I'm not sure it's quantifiable. But, but if you, you're talking about Bayer, Agfansco, uh, Volkswagen, Siemens, yeah, yeah, BASF. Now BASF, actually BASF and Bayer were actually part of IG Farben at the time. Okay. They had they were their own companies. IG Farben made them part of their conglomerate, and then when they were broken up after the war, they became their own companies again. But still, they had those Nazis embedded in them and their assets were being taken and put into these accounts and they to the point that they not only encouraged uh, they encouraged any kind of intellectual asset 
you know, licenses. A lot of people don't realize it, but but the Germans, a company, it was a BASF. I'm, my brain's kind of getting scrambled now. Anyway, uh, it was a German company that developed synthetic nitrates and synthetic fertilizers, which were then licensed around the world for right. hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. And that license was owned by a IG Farben. Throughout the war, they United States companies throughout the war for fertilizers and the makings of bombs, the explosives for bombs, they were paying IG Farben licenses to be able to do that. Kind of ironic and bizarre. Yeah. So all of that kind of stuff was all, it was held onto. They monitored it. They couldn't liquidate it right away because they were still executing the war. But they knew, they identified it all. They had it inventory. They knew where it was. And at the right time, they liquidated it all. Not only that, they not only liquidated it at all, but at the right time, they took every asset they had, including those things that they were liquidating, they put them up as collateral against actual cash loans in huge amounts of money. And then they, so they kind of double dipped on that and they put it all into this economy, all into these 750 corporations, at least 750 corporations around the world. And then they blame Jews for yeah. you know, <laughs> being cunning in this area. <laughs> right. Um, so that, you know, compared to Operation Fireland, Operation Fireland was infinitesimal compared to, mm. to that. He fundamentally, it's hard to quantify how much of the German economy he exported, but it had, I'm thinking it was in the 60 to 70 percentile. I don't know, but whatever it was, it was huge. And, uh, and his, uh, hang on, hang on. When sure. was this conference uh, you're talking about? Uh, I, I don't have the date right in my head. I don't have my book right in front no, of me. No, but the year. Is it 42 or 43? I believe it was 43 because he called it right after Stalingrad was lost. Exactly. That was my point. Yeah. He realized, many people realized that Stalin, when, when Germany lost Stalingrad, they, they were winning the war to that point, and they could not win the war after that. They knew they couldn't win the war after Stalingrad, with the exception of if they could get a nuclear bomb and use it yeah. uh, prior to the end. Or, or something even more exotic. But here's the point. This is one of many smoking guns. Yes. Why? Why would I? They would never trust Perron to, to use this uh, means. Of course, uh, uh. Yeah. So many leadership needed to take over, and it wouldn't be Goering, it wouldn't be Himmler. Right. It was, uh, yeah. Well, Borman wasn't going to let that happen because <laughs> he controlled all that stuff anyway. And Goering was, you know, purportedly the head of the German economic five year plan. But guess what? Nobody knows this, but he reported to Borman on that. Right. Borman was the chief of the economy as, as a leader of the Nazi party. Since the Nazis ran the government and the whole date and the whole Reich, that kind of was made sense. That's how it went, right? Yeah. So, um, I'm sorry, did you have another question? Uh, well, uh, no, but uh, related to this, you, I think you also wrote something about Borman planning uh, the peaceful takeover of Europe after the war. Now we're talking about these conferences, everything is about how to rig the system so that we can avoid uh, for, uh, the scenario after the First World War. Yeah. How can we get back in power and how can we get Germany back on top of the heap? And, and you said something about, in your book, I think, something about he conceiving then of a proto-European Union. Yeah, and I actually, uh, that wasn't my thought. It was actually uh, from another author. The, uh, the gentleman wrote uh, I.G. Farben in the Nazi era, or uh, the post-Nazi era. Oh, man, it's been a while. Yeah, I think that's the name. Mm. The, name's not, the name of the author is not coming to me right now, but he wrote that Borman envisioned controlling Europe 
through, and these are close to the exact words, but not exactly, that, that Borman envisioned controlling Europe through plastic economic means and not through warfare, and what would what he called a European economic community. Now, those are spooky words. <laughs> <laughs> that would be controlled and, and led by Germany, which is exactly what happened, right? Exactly. exactly. And, and not only that, but there were Nazis uh, involved in the development of it. Right. And if you look at the, uh, you know, the much uh, infamous Bilderberg conference, even that was launched by this um, SS officer who was in the royal family of... Uh, right. Holland or whatever. Yeah. So we see, we see they have. Uh, it's not evidence, but it is a trace. Yeah. You see permutations of these things. You see it also in, you know, the uh, uh, Europe is said to have been restored so quickly by the Marshall Plan, and that's how it got back on its feet so quickly. Well, that was a pretty good, and I think it probably contributed a little bit. But in reality, that was just a guy's camouflage for mm-hmm. Borman's what I call in the book, and it's a term I actually borrowed from Paul Manning, who wrote the book uh, Martin Borman, Nazi in Exile, mm-hmm. um, Borman's Flight Capital Program. And that's what it was. He took all the capital he could and and flew it out of the country (laughs) so that Germany could be revived after the war and in a position still to be predominant, if not the ruler of Europe. Exactly. And as we're gonna as we're gonna focus up on in future shows with others among else Peter Levanda and Joseph Farrell, we're gonna show how uh, much of this loot, these billion, billion of dollars were were not just stored in a bank account in Argentina, obviously. They were invested all over the world. And we can prove there's there's hard evidence that they were invested in concrete stuff like, say, uh, I think it was 20 tons of gold popping up in Indonesia. There was 20 tons of gold popping up in China. There was money being flooded into uh, satellite states of the Nazis, like in the Middle East, Egypt stuff. So so we're going to get back to this in future programs in detail, but it belongs to this part of the story too, to explain to people that this wasn't just desperate, spontaneous acts. There were actually a plan. Going back, it wasn't even yeah, a lot of you know when you when you read the traditional history of these guys who disappeared during the war and whether you believe Borman survived or not, you can talk about Stengel and and Eichmann and Barbie and all these guys, you know, and and they talk about how they took all this stuff to be greedy and and I don't you know I don't see it in those terms. I I, I kind of do, but the point is that Borman didn't take all this money because he wanted to be rich and live on a rich island all by himself somewhere. Not a personal greed. It wasn't a personal greed. It was a national greed. It was mm. ideological. The Nazi was still in there. It, yeah. it, in him. There was still a need for him and his people to control control what they could of, of the world around them. And so the point was to save the money, to save the economy, to save the nation afterward and keep on going in a different uh, direction. Yeah. No, but but this goes back to your point again about the symbiosis between Hitler and Bormann, because we've tried Hitler's way, which is brute force, right? And right. and and he had uh, fronts at all uh, around him. He was around he, he, the, the card house fell apart. Well, and it was two times in a little over two decades he had tried military means hadn't worked. So yeah, and so. Yeah, sorry, go on. I was just saying, so they learned their lesson. You know, they weren't going to try it a third time. I, I don't think Hitler learned that lesson. I think Bormann yes, I, learned yes. that lesson. And I, what I think happened here, based upon your uh, what, what you say yourself, is that 
in this symbiosis, Bormann then takes Hitler vision and says, okay, we have to be smarter about it. And if you, if you read what Hitler said, he said straight out that this is how the Jews operate, the enemy. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's one of the reasons they went after the Jews. If we, if you look at their ideological reasons, that right. those are the only threats because they are so cunning, they are so powerful, right. and uh, they have the resources that they wanted. <laughs> yeah, and and so uh, now we try to exterminate them. It didn't work. So let's try Bormann's approach. Or Bormann's uh, thinking probably. Uh, let me implement the Führers vision but in a smarter way in a different medium yeah yeah yep that's kind of how i I look at it that's exactly how i look at it i think that's exactly what happened so we agree there yes absolutely yeah and and but then you say that they were basically using neutral so-called neutral because we know that most of the neutral countries were collaborating with the germans until uh, germany lost then everybody suddenly were on the allied sides but never mind that you said that still (laughs) huh I say, but only on the surface still. There's still plenty of evidence that they were double-dealing below, below. Right. Well, if you look at a country like, um, let's say, Turkey and Sweden, mm-hmm. right? Both of them were helping Nazis under the parts of the country, at least, were uh, helping the Nazis. But as soon as, you know, ev- everybody declared, and I think that's so cowardly, everybody declared war on Germany. When it was like, <laughs> well, it was a, a done deal. When it was over. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, that's so pathetic. But anyway, you said that uh, they invested uh, the banks and the corporations in the neutral and the allied countries. But I beg to differ because I know that they also used America. I mean, you you already know they did. Yeah, they did. And I probably about the Bush family and and even Donald Trump's father <laughs> and the Koch brothers and there's so many big players in America you you have the what they call the businessman plot mm-hmm. where they try to take out Roosevelt which was Nazi sympathizers so yeah I don't know all the permutations coming out for after the war to to some of the people you mentioned I uh, like I said I had to kind of uh, circumscribe my my scope just to keep saying it yeah. to be able to pay for what I was doing in time and money um, so I didn't follow it beyond what happened right after the war where it went from there but I do know I, I do agree that it didn't just stay in those hands of countries that were prone to toward Germany they ended up and United States even had at least four bank accounts that had Borman's uh, signature on them so yeah, yeah and I mean, my point is that uh, that's the direct involvement but they had like half of Wall Street uh, in their pocket too mm-hmm. I mean some of the families I mentioned but there were many she was in Nazi sympathizers in Wall Street, which obviously led to the businessman coup. Uh, even Kennedy's father <laughs> was. Yeah. Was. Well, Kennedy's father, uh, Lindbergh, uh, you know, there were a lot of people that, at least initially and, and well into the game, and I'm sure afterward, remained Nazis. But that's not my field of expertise. No, no. But it belongs to this part of the story. And if you look at England, in the beginning, there were uh, many of, of the City of London people too. But, of course, that wasn't viable after the war. But we also know they did make money from there because they had these, um, oh, what's the English word when you make false money? Uh, counterfeit? Yeah, they were counterfeiting big time. Yeah, that was one of the things. That was that actually was one of Borman's ideas. That was Borman, right? Yeah, yeah. he had a bunch of counterfeited a bunch of, of English pounds, and 
he did two things with him, from what I understand. Maybe you know more about this than I do because I it was it was a line I followed a little bit just as it tied to Operation Fireland, but I didn't really blow out the rest of the way for its total context in world affairs. Mm-hmm. But from what I understood, he counterfeited and 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 some of it he used to a large amount of it he used to put into the English economy to kind of liquidate their economy to water it down and kind of try and ruin their currency. But a lot of it he used and kind of deposited in banks and took it out as real hard currency. And that was one of the – an exchange he did, one of the ways he made money. Exactly. Yeah. So we have to move on in the scenario here. But we sure. see already here that they are preparing. And they would never have uh, done anything here without a plan B and a plan yeah. C, especially not Bormann. One thing is Hitler. He's an all or nothing guy. Yeah. But uh, Bormann – it's just inconceivable that he didn't take measures. And, and let's get to that now. But we've gone for an hour, so I think we'll allow ourselves to take a short break. Okay. And when we come back, we'll go in depth into Martin Bowman, uh, the nature of his escape, right. and a lot of interesting. This is where the story really takes up some pace, people. Uh, it's, yeah, I think it's where the real important stuff as to how the world became what the world is today is in this part of the story we're getting ready to, to approach. Yeah, and indeed. So stay, so stay tuned, people. people. You don't you want don't to miss want this. this. Right, right, right. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks.